You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And you're listening to Season 3, Episode 4. Yes. And before we get going with this episode, we wanted to issue a little bit of an apology. We do. We have an apology to our very first guest, and that is Daniel. Danny, the medical school student. Last podcast episode, we referred to Elena as our very first guest ever. She was actually our second guest. Right. She was the first guest that we Skyped with and In our interviewed. minds, she was the first because right. she was kind of our test guest. <laughs> right. So we actually had, we, we did two interviews with Elena. The second one we ended up airing. The first one we did before we interviewed Danny. So like Sally said, in our minds. Elena was our she first. Was the first. But, but actually, Danny was technically our first. If you go to season one, episode one, which we referred to, wrongly as elena's interview that's actually with danny so danny we're very sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) so yes that's our apology we also wanted to share a tip of the week with you and our hashtag tip of the week is to not go to indianapolis indiana in april right or at least just not when the weather's bad. I mean, yes. here's the thing Which about I've spring. I've heard April, it's just too fickle. It's just hit or miss, right? Yeah. I mean, anytime you go in early spring anywhere, you get rained on. You Especially could get, in the Midwest. <laughs> right. Yeah. You could get snowed on, in fact. Yeah. Chicago got hit by a, and, and Michigan got Michigan, hit by a big, yeah. big snowstorm last weekend. Yeah. So, so yeah, last weekend we drove to Indy um, to visit some friends, and we were expecting a little bit more springy weather. And unfortunately, we were met with That's not what we got. bitter cold, which kept us indoors pretty much the whole time. It was not pleasant. Yes, not at all. Uh, we did, however, get to venture downtown for a little bit. Our friends drove us around, showed us what the downtown was like. It looked very nice, actually. Yeah, it looked like in better weather, it would have been really fun to explore. Yes, so, and we're looking forward to going back in better yeah. weather and walking around a bit. We did get to go to this uh, place with pretty good tacos called Bakersfield. And I forget the name of the street that it was on, but it was... Um, it's it's not a it's not a huge chain, but it has a few different locations yes, outside has, of Indianapolis. I think Nashville and Charlotte and Cincinnati, mm-hmm. maybe a couple others. But it was pretty good. Uh, unfortunately for us, they seated us in the basement area, in and they kind of uh, sat us down in a small separate room. And I was initially really happy because we got what I thought was a separate room, but we rounded the corner and there was a whole table of very excited. Uh, young people there. And I don't know if it was because of like the cave-like nature of the basement, but it was hard to hear anything. Yeah. We just heard, except for what everyone else at the other tables were saying. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It was like the cone of silence in the old Get Get Smart series. Yeah. Where you could hear everything else from outside. (laughs) Except for the people right next to you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And when we emerged from the cave, which, yeah, I just didn't like the basement. So I guess I'm kind of negative about that. But once we emerged from there, we it was even busier than when we arrived. Yeah. So a really popular place. For so, sure. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know when the best time to go is, but not when you're going to be seated in the basement and when it's really, really busy. And, but that was pretty late for lunch, I think. That's I think we I, ran around 1.30 right. or I something. I thought too. And then it was busier at two o'clock. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. But the food was good. I will say the food was good. The tacos were good. They were kind of like tiny little tacos um, that you, you kind of order you a multiple, la carte, you know, right. for three or four dollars a taco. Yeah. I think I didn't really care for the fish taco. It definitely wasn't the best fish taco I've ever yeah, had. Yeah. But I the mean, chicken one was good. And the one you got, the what was that? Steak, uh, I think. That was good. I thought it was pork belly. Oh, okay. Maybe not. 
I'm already forgetting what I ordered. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. So we would recommend Bakersfield. Just be aware that it's a very popular place and it could be crowded. Unfortunately, we don't have any more recommendations for you from Indy <laughs> this time around. We didn't do a lot. We barely made it outside. Yeah. But anyway, so that's your tip of the week. Don't go to Indy in early spring. <laughs> but speaking of early spring, early spring does bring something amazing, and that is this thing called baseball. My favorite sport of all time. I'm a huge Philadelphia Phillies fan, but I love all things baseball at all levels of competition. And I'm very excited that opening day was last weekend. Uh, we were in Indy on opening day and uh, did not get to see any game, but I've seen some games on TV. Uh, my beloved Phillies were off to an 0-4 start, but they finally won their first game last night. So that's Yay. pretty exciting. Um, but yeah, I just love everything about baseball. And the warmer the weather gets, the more enjoyable the games are to attend outside. I'm looking forward to catching several Major League Baseball games in person this Definitely. year. Hopefully my Phillies in action a few times as well. Yes. And to also celebrate the beginning of baseball season, we watched Moneyball. That's right. Sally had never seen Moneyball. If you've not seen it, I would it's recommend really it. It's really good. I liked it a lot. It's based on this idea of sabermetrics, which is basically advanced statistics for baseball. And sabermetrics was originally pioneered by a guy named Bill James, who uh, did not actually work in the baseball industry. He was a, I think he was a security guard at like a pork um, manufacturing, pork processing uh, center. Plant or something yeah. interesting. <laughs> Uh, but in his spare time, he did a lot of statistical analysis of baseball stuff, and he pioneered some really amazing theories. Think like Nate Silver, 538 on steroids. That's what Bill James did for baseball. And he really kind of revolutionized the game. There are some positives and some negatives to that, I think. But It definitely seems to still be a debate. Yes. And I think there's – I think with good reason. I mean I think there's a lot to be said for the art of the game devoid of statistics, but – there's also there's also a certain art and beauty in the statistics themselves. So I think Moneyball conveys that well. Uh, we were talking about why it was such a great film, and then we realized that the screenplay was by Alan Alan Sorkin. Aaron Aaron <laughs> <laughs> Sorkin. That's the only thing that I had in my mind. Yes, Oops. Uh, Aaron Sorkin of the West Wing. And the newsroom. The newsroom, which we've already said as a tip of the week, is amazing. And the more recent Steve Jobs biopic as well. Uh, brilliant writer, and he really did a good job with Moneyball. And Brad Pitt did a good acting performance. And yeah. Jonah Hill, surprisingly, in a genre that is not really one you expect to see Jonah Hill in. Yeah, kind of more serious. Yeah, more serious drama. Yeah, it was really good. So I know kind of an older movie, but you should watch it if you haven't seen it already. Yeah, so Moneyball. Um, and then speaking of sports, another segue, The Warriors. We had uh, Ishan. Uh, on a couple weeks ago to talk about Steph Curry and the amazing run the Warriors are on. They were challenging the 96 Bulls for the most wins ever in a season. The Bulls record still stands as of today, Sunday, the 9th of April. The Bulls record still stands at 72 wins. But the Warriors have two games left, and they have 71 wins. But they've been kind of in a rough patch. They have. They've lost a couple games as of late and games they should not have lost. But they're still in the hunt. Like I said, two games left, 71 wins. Tonight they play the San Antonio Spurs on the road, and they they just played the Memphis Grizzlies last night. And won? And won. Barely. By one point Yikes. at the very end. It was a nail-biter down at the end. It was controversial because of a, a foul. And the Spurs are really good? The Spurs are really good. Okay. They're the second-best team in the league. Wow. 
They are favorites to win because they're undefeated at home this season, and that's where they're playing the Warriors. And the Warriors already lost to them at home, right? They did. Yep, the Warriors have lost them at home that's this year. But here's the thing. The Warriors played the Spurs last week in California, and the Warriors won that game handily. Mm. So it's going to be a competition tonight. I'm pretty excited to see how it turns out. Even if the Warriors lose, they could still get 72 wins by winning their last game of the season, but the Spurs could derail their chances at making history tonight by making sure they cannot get to 73 wins. Mm. So it's pretty exciting. We'll see how that shakes out. And We oh. also wanted to say we have exciting news about new contributors. Right. We had mentioned that in our last podcast, but we did not reveal those contributors. Now they're on our website. We have two new contributors, actually. We have Ishan coming as our contributor, our sports contributor. And our economist. So he's our money man and sportscaster. Yes. And we have Elena from the last week's podcast. And season one, episode two. Two. (laughs) Not our very first guest. Our very second guest. She is going to be our critic. She's going to talk to us about music and movies and TV shows. And, and vocation. And vocation, right. So we're really excited to have them join our team. And you should check out our staff page because we have updated pictures and profiles of all of our staff members. And we're working on uh, at least one other person to add as contributors. So stay tuned for that as yes. well. Yes, exciting times at Vernacular. With that nail biter. <laughs> Let's get to the meat of this episode where we talk to a guy who's working to build, as he calls it, conservative futures. All right, welcome back to Vernacular. We are here with Nathan Hitchin, who is a founder, the founder, and a principal at Conservative Foresight Consulting, and he's here to talk about uh, all of the things that he does in that position. Nathan, welcome to the show. Hey, Zach and Sally. Great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So, uh, Nathan, thanks, first of all, for reaching out and uh, letting us know you wanted to be on Vernacular. We took a look at what you're doing there, and it all looks very interesting, and we have tons of questions for you. Uh, so let me back it up by talking. Actually, no, I'll let you back it up by telling us what you do. What is Conservative Foresight Consulting? So Conservative Foresight Consulting is a project that uh, I've uh, led with a, a colleague of mine, a professor from grad school. And the principle behind it is giving conservative organizations, groups, nonprofits, networks, the same advantages that some businesses get when they contract with a consulting group. So it's essentially about giving conservative nonprofits strategic foresight for long-term projects that will define their mission and vision and enabling them to think more rigorously in order to act more strategically on their mission. So can you back that up even a little bit more and just define conservative? Because I think it can be a confusing term. There's so many different definitions of it. Different people call themselves conservatives. What does conservative mean for CFC? Yeah, I mean, especially even in this election cycle, the divisions are especially stark. Where you yes. Have candidates who are vastly different from each other yet all claiming the label somehow conservative. conservative. Yeah. So, so in your words, what is conservative? That is a good question. So I would say conservative is someone who would rather move to New Zealand than vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd say at a higher level, a conservative is someone who believes in and wants to defend the heritage of Western civilization, both the moral and kind of material inheritance that we have, and of which America is a part. 
uh, specifically things like religious freedom, rule of law, our tradition of, of natural rights and self-government, private enterprise, those sorts of things. Um, at the kind of workaday level of American politics, uh, I would define a conservative as someone who believes that our constitutional order and our traditional civic culture are achievements that are worth conserving for the future. Uh, but for the purposes of conservative foresight consulting, a conservative is anyone who agrees to pay us for our services. <laughs> <laughs> so you would take anybody in this election season who says they're conservative. Would you take right, right, Donald right. Trump? <laughs> no, I would not take Donald Trump. So um, actually, and actually that's, that's a good, that's a good um, question. We are not about political candidates. We're not about elections per se. We don't, we don't try, we're not trying to shoehorn people into office. Our focus is on long-term kind of grassroots networks and, and nonprofits that are looking to advance conservative vision and missions in whatever sphere that they happen to inhabit, whether it might be you know, education policy, the charter schools, or a pro-life group, um, kind of social, uh, social-oriented groups that basically believe that no, you know, elections and candidates can come and go, but there's some long-term enduring goods that are worth pursuing um, in the in the space that America has for, for civic society. And those are the groups that we really want to serve. Now, your last comment about the, the clients that you work with uh, actually was a good segue to a question I had for you. So you described Conservative Foresight Consulting as a consulting firm that works with conservative organizations and helps them do strategic foresight. But, I mean, why not just work with all organizations and advertise yourself to all organizations but help them, you know, have a conservative a conservative's vision, vision of the future? The future. That's a good question. So I would say two things. One, you know, kind of in the the mold of what consultants do, and I, I was a consultant for some time, uh, I don't want to impose my vision of what a conservative future should be on any group. So I want to go alongside the groups that exist out there and ones that, of course, that, that we would agree with and share kind of a common vision for the future. But kind of start a conversation with them about how do they pursue their vision of what the conservative future in whatever corner of the country that they are in, whatever issue set they happen to be in, right? We, I believe in kind of the, the plurality and let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, I don't want to impose my own uh, even definition of what a conservative future should be writ large. And I don't have those answers, right? I want, I want to partner with uh, all these groups that are pursuing these things independently at all levels of society. So that's kind of the one, that's the first part. The second part I would say is why I want to focus on conservatives is that <clears throat> I think the conservative movement has a strategy deficit with the left. Strategic thinking on the right is happening, but in informal pockets on narrow issues. For example, uh, there are state policy groups that try imitating uh, the left's successful initiatives. For example, uh, if you've ever heard of the Colorado model, basically just a strategy that a bunch of um, progressive groups in Colorado um, pursued in tandem and they coordinated for turning Colorado blue. So it was, an, it was successful in 2008. And uh, in the news and, you know, in kind of the, the nerdy political culture online, people called it the Colorado model for turning red states into blue states. Um, there is no, the right has no continuous learning environment for people to apply such a model for the conservatives. 
there's no there's no group of people who collect signals of change to analyze and turn into insight for long-term action now the left on the other hand has pursued a strategic vision since about 2003 as far as i can tell to marginalize the conservative movement and make america more progressive so back in 2002 and 2004 if you remember the republicans won big time and it shocked the left and it mobilized leaders to reinvigorate the progressive movement with a strategy to build a new research culture for grassroots campaigns and for electoral success to make them to basically push the country more to the left and major progressive donors at that time like George Soros, Peter Lewis, decided to invest in strategic thinking for left-wing pressure groups. And it produced a, a panoply of civic organizations. You know, in, in one sense, <clears throat> I have to hand it to them, it was a, it was a successful Tocquevillian model of, of civic action. So they built a strategic capacity with no counterpart on the right and included groups like the Center for American Progress, the New Organizing Institute, Democracy Alliance, Catalyst, and the Analyst Institute. And these are probably unfamiliar names to a lot of folks because they've, they've flown under the radar. But <clears throat> in the research that I did in, in preparing to launch CFC uh, revealed that, you know, these are sorts of these groups represent applying all sorts of new and innovative methods uh, to studying voter behavior, to messaging strategies. The Analyst Institute, for example, I would say represents the best uh, example of the left strategic advantage over the right. It's housed with PhDs in behavioral science and political science, and they apply the scientific method to studying what persuades people, uh, what turns people out to vote. And in some of the, some of the news reporting on, on the Analyst Institute, uh, they, they've been likened to Moneyball for how they changed political social strategy with data-driven analytics. Okay, so two questions here. Uh, first, going back to your earlier comments about how the conservative movement has no analogous process to the left's movements like the Colorado model. Mm -hmm. uh, it would seem to me, and, and maybe this has been your experience, maybe it's not, but it would seem to me that that's kind of a problem inherent to conservatism at all because conservatism is about maintaining whereas progressivism is about changing. So it's understandable to me how you have a model, a progressive model for changing a state from blue, from red to blue, but it'd be pretty difficult to have a conservative model for changing a state from blue to red. I think you're putting your finger on a very deep and potentially troubling issue for conservatives that we need to think about philosophically. So, right, does conservatism as a disposition let alone a political movement, does it arise only after what you valued has been lost? Right. Right? And so, if so, are they, is it always a losing game? Is it always a reactionary thing? A right. I mean, are you, are you basically always thing? preventing yourself from decaying? Right. I actually think there's a lot to that, insofar as this. Insofar as conservatives have, if they want to reconjure a, a golden era, that they have in their mind, whether it be, <clears throat> I don't know, the 1980s, the 1950s, the founding era. If, the, if there's a nostalgic imagination that's animating conservative thought and action, I think conservatives will always be reactionary, or reactive, at least. And there will always be some, some advantage of initiative on the left. 
I happen to think there's another way of looking at conservatism that's more future-oriented, and I would call this futurist conservatism. And it it has not ever been put together in kind of a body of thought um, outside of my own attempt to do so uh, uh, in a document called Breakthrough, a guide for creating conservative futures that's on conservativeforesight.com, CFC's website. And what, what characterizes futurist conservative as opposed to more of a kind of reactive traditional type is that they have a, they study images of the future. They study what, it, what does history say that's good about human life, but they forecast forward and look for trends and signals of change to, with wisdom, either adjust to them or influence them. They are essentially creative rather than reactive. And I would even put, I would actually put the founding fathers in this category in the sense that they wanted to build something for the future, using the wisdom of the past, but also using the wisdom of the future, knowing that this is how humans work. And it takes strategy and effort to create and build that future. They're not just looking back, they're, actually, they're also looking ahead. And I think that kind of conservatism, a futurist conservatism, is the actual is actually the most powerful and the most creative and the the best hope for conservatives actually having success. So, given that philosophical context, let's um, so hypothetically speaking, let's say we're a conservative organization or business, and we've approached you and want to want your consulting expertise. Just walk us through how you would how you would help us build that kind of vision for the future. You're not like the guys in office space who just go in to <laughs> fire people. <laughs> right. We don't come in and tell them they need to come and work on, on the weekend <laughs> right. and then fill up the TSP report. Right. What we're doing is is essentially, again, putting it more the kind of the philosophical terms of, kind of what a futurist conservative should be doing. We're actually co-creating an image of the future with them. We are collaborating on, on, on what is the good that they're trying to achieve, but then using our practical wisdom and you know, through these creative thinking techniques and, and, all, and all other sorts of kind of consulting um, tradecraft to build out you know, what is a strategic conversation that brings everyone on board and, and then ultimately mobilizes the organization forward. Because the most effective and successful groups, human organizations, those that actually achieve a vision of a future that they have tend to be the ones that have the widest, the widest shared image of the future, that everyone in the organization understands what they're doing. They understand the, the higher level impact and outcomes that their daily work helps produce. And so ultimately what we're trying to do, and this is the third step, is help start an ongoing strategic conversation in the organization. So when we deliver our findings to them through this collaborative process, you know, we'll present them an executive presentation to inform their decision about their goals. But over the course of, of multiple engagements, we can provide continuity between successive strategy sessions and follow-up and analysis and briefs that ultimately get, you know, we're, we're getting the conversation going so that ultimately the organization is a learning organization. It is, it is actively thinking where it is in the present and getting to where it wants to be in the future. So I mentioned a couple minutes ago that I had two questions and I asked you one. Uh, and then I interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally okay. Uh, the second question, though, uh, comes from Breakthrough, which is your guide to building conservative futures. So I've read this. At the end of it, you have 
what you call a proposition to bring the right strategy for the long run. And at the end of that section, you highlight five different types of organizations that the right has. Uh, the fusionists, the movement foundations, the small government organizations, national security organizations, and then the traditionalists. And I, I haven't counted these, but it looks like there's about 30, 35 organizations on this list. So uh, what what is causing this deficit that you're saying exists in thinking strategically about the future? So I think there's a, there's a couple things going on. I think for organizations at the you know individual organizational level, a lot of these groups are focusing most of their efforts on fundraising and um, subsisting. So their day-to-day operations and, and fundraising essentially are, are, is the bulk of what they do. And when you're basically treading water as an organization like that, you have, you have various projects, initiatives, scholars doing what they do, but you're basically treading water as an organization. And you don't have much margin to think about the future. So I think that's going on with some groups. I think what's going on at a, more, at a higher level is, you know, you have, you, you kind of detailed the five different types of organizations I, I cataloged in, in, uh, in that one analysis. You have groups that are sometimes working on um, not necessarily cross purposes, but they have different priorities. So, small government groups are are more interested in kind of economics and what's going on in economic policy, and you know, traditionalist groups are looking at what's going on in terms of religious liberty and 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 kind of social issues. And so, you're not going to have uh, necessarily much overlap, or they will be kind of fleeting cases of common interest. Um, which is one of the reasons why in that section, uh, my, the proposition is you need a hub. You have all of these various organizations spread around like the ends of spokes on the wheel. And what you need is, is a platform that enables people, when they do have overlapping interests, to come to a common point and essentially have a resource to have these shared strategic conversations that make connections that they wouldn't otherwise make or know to make. Um, you know, some of these groups that, uh, that kind of overlap, that bridge these various categories like social conservative, fiscal, and whatnot, is what I call the fusionist. So you think like a Heritage Foundation is an example of that. They have multiple kind of issue-oriented, issue analysts and, and, um, and scholars who are concerned on different kind of points of, of politics and policy all in one place. You know, that would be a natural place to have uh, kind of a, a, a holistic conversation about what's going on. But that heritage—that would be internal to heritage. But heritage needs, needs to do that with AEI, and it needs to do that with, um, you know, the FRC, and you know, on and on and on. And I think, I think there's not one hub for doing this. There are personalities that sometimes convene groups ad hoc, and Ed Meese does does that a lot. Um, but he's getting up there in age, um, and I've talked to him about this project actually. Um, but there just seems to be kind of a lack, besides the personality-based things, there's not an institutional platform. It's not an institutional base. It's personality-based. But now there problem. is with conservative foresight consulting, right? Well, maybe. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm just simply proposing that there needs to be, you know, someone out there needs to do this, put out, you know, this kind of platform. But, you know, if it happens to be conservative foresight consulting, then that would be great. But, I mean, what we're, what we're really aiming at right now is just helping organizations just get above that subsistence level of existence. They need to start looking to the future. And um, you know, if there are cases of common interest uh, and people who are interested in, in, in basically contracting with us to 
provide this, provide the thought process, provide the, the foresight and the strategic conversation, then and that is that would be completing our mission. Right. I mean, it seems like at this point, a lot of it's just a PR campaign to help people see see that this is a problem in the conservative movement. There is a huge yes, defining the problem. People understand that there is that there is a sense of loss. Like there's not the conservatives are not being very successful at things, right? You ask your your average conservative, do you feel like all the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on conservative initiatives and and groups and nonprofits do you think you've gotten anything out of that? Do you think the country's moved right or left over the last 10 years? And people are going to say, no, actually, it's, it's, I don't really see much of a, a result. You know, where, where are the results? Where's the beef? So that is hundreds of millions of dollars that these groups raise collectively. Maybe the That's problem is they just money. need to throw more money at the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is always that is, the solution. <laughs> that is always the solution in America. Just throw more money at the Right. Okay, so one final question for you before we end here. Um, you mentioned in Breakthrough and on your site that it's important for conservatives and conservative organizations to learn how to tell a better story. And yes. can you explain to us what that means, what kind of stories we're talking about? Are we talking about, you know, the little little Red Riding Hood kind of story? <laughs> no, but um, – and and why, why is storytelling so important? So the short answer is there is no vision without – storytelling. So stories are important because they channel or transform our image of the future. Those visions that I mentioned before that define what is good, what should be striven for, and those ideas of you know, what should be avoided, you know, what, what is dystopia for you. In other words, we use stories to grapple with the uncertainty of the future, and in some cases we use them to help create the future. So, for example, <clears throat> The United States has an image of the future, and it's called the American Dream. Uh, other countries have kind of collective, broad narratives, images of the future. Um, think of the state of Israel has the image of Zion, a homeland for homeless people. Or you think of Russia, which has this image of, of Holy Rus, uh, this old view of Moscow as a protector of Christianity, the third Rome. These are kind of deeply ingrained almost, um, I mean, certainly national-held images of the future. And these images can, can take on fearful or hopeful um, tones that can either attract us or repel us from certain choices and decisions. So, you know, what's, what's happening now in America, in my opinion, is that the American dream has taken on this fearful tone that is being lost, right? That... You know, previously people could imagine themselves, their future down the street, so to speak, how they would navigate their personal life, buy homes, plan for children, get a college education, and that doing these things would kind of constitute the American dream, that kind of image of the future that, that Americans have. Um, but it's it's being lost. And so what happens is it's becoming no longer hopeful but fearful, and so people are acting out of resentment out of a sense of um, almost righteous anger that, that their image of the future has been betrayed, has been taken away. Now, we also use images of the future and stories uh, about what we could be like down the road that inspire our public life with grand visions. And I would say, you know, a great example of this was, was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan told a story about a city on the hill, right? What it was a, 
a, a touchstone narrative that goes back to our founding, um, actually before our founding, um, and about what, what what is the what is why is America here? Right? Stories give you a glimpse of the ending of the beginning and the ending of of your book. You know, we we started with this idea of we are going to be a set apart people to do something special, and therefore by telling stories about the American dream, you have a sense of what, what do you want to spend the rest of your life doing? Um, and so telling, so the image of the future of the American dream and telling stories about people who fulfilled the American dream, give us a vision in both our daily life and in our kind of our public life that give us a vision to, to do grand enterprises, to dare great deeds and to build things for the future. So that's what I mean. There's no vision without storytelling. And that's why stories are important. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking to us today about everything you're doing with Conservative Foresight Consulting, Nathan. I appreciate it. For our listeners, if you want to check out more of Nathan's work, uh, head to conservativeforesight.com. There you can read more about his project and check out some of the written works that we've talked about today. And we'll have a link to that on our website. We will indeed. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Zach and Sally. It's great to be here. We're back to close out episode four, and we wanted to first check our inbox. Oh, great idea. Let's see what we've got. Yay, we have some mail. Laura has emailed us, and she says that she loved our conversation about vocation. That was last week with Elena. Peeper is awesome. So you'll recall I mentioned Joseph Peeper's book, Leisure. Um, a basis, the basis, the basis of culture. of culture. I've not read this book, but I recommended it. It is on our bookshelf, so it's like we <laughs> kind of read it. Yeah, um, but yeah, so we need to read it. Laura, however, has read it, and she says that she recommends both Leisure and one of Peeper's other books called "In Tune with the World: A Theory of Festivity." So thank you, Laura, for listening, and thank you so much for your book recommendations. We'll have to check out both of those. And we'll have to add that second one to our bookshelf as well. Yes. Like the first one. <laughs> That's the first step before you read it. You have to at least have it on your bookshelf. Or at least check the library. And that way when people come over, they can think that you're really smart because you have all these amazing books oh, on your bookshelf. Oh, I see. That's how I that see. works. All right. Well, I think that's it for us. As always, please rate us and review us on iTunes. That really helps get our visibility up on iTunes and help people find us. Yes, and leave us a review while you do that. So give us a star rating, one through five, and let us know how we're doing. Give us some feedback. You can also email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can go to our website, vernacularpodcast.com. Check out past episodes and leave a comment. Let us know what you like about each episode or what you don't like. If you're on social media, you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast or on Twitter at vernacularpod. All right. We'll be back next week. <laughs> For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Feeling better than ever When I'm by your side